Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Relationships in healthcare are important, and trust is crucial to those relationships. However, it has been on the decline in the United States. I'm Laura Jost, Associate Editorial Director of the American Journal of Managed Care. As trust declines, wrote Dr. Richard Barron, President and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the ABIM Foundation, alternative sources of information rise up to challenge and even supplant rigorous scientific knowledge and experiences. In a commentary published in the American Journal of Accountable Care, he pointed to the persistence of anti-vaccination messages, despite the evidence that vaccines are safe, as an example. So, ABIM Foundation sought to focus on building trust through its Trust Practice Challenge, which would identify and promote existing practices that promote trustworthiness. I spoke recently with Daniel Wolfson, Executive Vice President and COO of the ABIM Foundation, and representatives from each of the eight winning organizations about trust in healthcare and their best practices. So talking about the Trust Practice Challenge, can you explain a little bit about why trust is so crucial in healthcare and some of the consequences that arise if there's a lack of trust? Really, uh, in healthcare, relationships are all pervasive. There's nothing about healthcare that does not involve a relationship, be it a patient and a physician, be it between physicians and clinicians and teams, or relationships with organizations. They all involve trust. And without trust, there's no glue to that relationship, as Steve Covey uh, once said. Um, So we think it's critical. We think it's very related to professionalism, where we're always thinking about respectful and trusting relationships. Trust has been on the decline from 65 till now. It's had a 50% decrease in the medical system. And we think by addressing trust in a very intentional way, we can begin to rebuild trust or maintain trust where it does exist. But unattended, trust will diminish. And I know there are certain populations that have always had a more difficult trust relationship with the healthcare system. There's the African-American community after the Tuskegee syphilis study, for instance. Is that part of the erosion of trust or is there something else going on that's causing it? I think there's a long history, very complicated history, with certain populations, including African-Americans and Hispanics. I don't think it's one event that occurred. I think it's accumulation of many negative interactions with the system that have not reinforced that I am to be known, I am to be respected. There's been signals of, I don't trust you. And I think it's not one event. I think it's accumulation of a lot of uh, implicit racism, uh, historical events, Um, And I think we need to address that kind of mistrust if we are ever going to have health equity in this country. And without that, I think we're going to continue to have poor outcomes with these types of populations that really are underserved and 
uh, don't want to enter the system on terms where they're not being seen by somebody that looks like them, and um, they're not feeling respected. When, for instance, when somebody would call with a name like Wanda, they would automatically be assumed to be African American and be treated differently. That is implicit racism. And so we have to address that. And um, it is the area where there is the most mistrust. And it affects outcomes of care. It affects people adhering to their treatment plan that they've developed with a, a physician. Uh, and it leads to poorer outcomes. So uh, trust is just not nice thing to have. It's important for health outcomes. So what was the ABIM Foundation Trust Practice Challenge exactly? What were you asking of the people who submitted entries? Uh, in, in a similar way of choosing wisely, when you talk about overuse, be concrete about what you want to decrease, what has value or low value. We wanted to make trust an intentional practice where people really thought about how do I increase trust in lots of different relationships. So we asked many communities, the health plans, the hospital community, the research community, uh, the physician community, what are those practices that enhance trust? Let's be very concrete about it. And we got 68 submissions. We had 30 very meritorious uh, submissions and eight outstanding uh, submissions. And this summer at our annual forum, we want to think about how do we scale and replicate those kinds of practices? What can we learn about that, those practices that can help us scale and replicate? So I think we can talk about trust in a very abstract way, but I think there are practices out there that are uh, replicable, are helping build trust that we need to look at, examine, and say, how do we advance them? Ultimately, what does ABIM Foundation hope to accomplish with this challenge? What do you want to come about as a result of highlighting these eight winners? So one of the, I think, the primary uh, objective now is to have a national conversation about the importance of trust. Um, how do we think about it? How do we become more intentional about um, how, we, how we think about trust and its importance? Um, so uh, we think by having this conversation, identifying practices, we can increase the trust levels. One in three people in the public do not trust the medical system. That is not a good number. So the trusting levels are high. When, you, when you, you look at the trust, you'll see that it went from 80% down to 40%. That's a 50% drop in that time period. We need to address that. So I think the, the next phase of this trust challenge is to have different sectors begin to think of the five things that they will build trust for. For instance, we're going to ask hospitals, health plans, researchers, 
what are the five things, what are the five practices that instill, engender, promote trust? And that's what we see as the next phase of our trust challenge. Um, maybe with a different name, but similar to choosing wisely, let the organizations begin to select those five things. And I think we can have a, a conversation, a national conversation, and involve many, many more people uh, and many more sectors that it were not represented in the first challenge. So we're really excited about this, and it's going to uh, probably uh, take us a while to get there, just like choosing wisely. Uh, but we're uh, determined, uh, we're passionate about it, and we'll persist. The eight winning organizations all had very different programs that addressed the three main areas of trust among team members, between physicians and their organizations, and between patients and their physicians or the organization. First, we'll take a look at trust between patients and their physicians or the organization. At the University of Chicago, Dr. Lolita Al-Qureshi helped implement a program to address use of electronic health records. EHRs are used all the time in clinical care, and while there is great potential to improve communication and trust, the EHR as a third party can interfere with the relationship between patients and physicians, she explained. You know, times when the physician is just too focused on the actual computer and not the patient, or they're not, they're not introducing the screen to them. They don't even know what their clinician is doing. So we really wanted to focus on ways that we could capitalize on the positives and try and avoid the negatives so that it's used as something that can actually enhance that clinical interaction and help facilitate trust and understanding. So what really kicked off the reason for this program? Were you noticing that as EHRs were being introduced, trust was declining? Yeah, you know, I think the, the birth of kind of my interest in this project really stemmed from when my own clinic um, went online. And so we were ditching the paper charts and converting over and I actually trained um, as a super user ahead of the actual go live. And for one entire month, as kind of we rolled it out, all my clinics were canceled, which was so weird. And my only job was to float around and help clinicians kind of navigate the EHR. And I saw, you know, as a fly, you know, on the wall in the room watching these clinician interactions, I saw how it was really negatively impacting communication. The physicians were just so honed in on the computers. They were missing nonverbal cues from their patients. There were long silences. There were instances where the patient was saying stuff and the clinician really wasn't hearing it because they were trying to multitask and do other things. So it was super eye-opening for me. And that's why kind of I got interested in it because I saw it happening to my colleagues, people that were master clinicians, awesome communicators, and yet things were getting in the way because of this new third party in the room. And so that's really what kind of made us get interested in it. So tell me about the comic. How was it being distributed to patients and how did you use it to get them engaged? Yeah, so um, we we developed the comic based on kind of three core self-advocacy behaviors that we identified in the literature for patients. And um, we created it to be very visual 
easy to kind of just look at it and understand something that would appeal to a diverse population. And so we called it um, the uh, ABCs, Computers in Clinic Year Role. And so it's a little panel, A, B, C, going down. A is asked to see the screen. So it shows the situation where the patient's kind of left out of the clinic visit because their provider is not really showing them what's on the screen. There's no transparency. And then on the second panel, it shows a more ideal interaction where the patient speaks up and says, hey, can I, can I see what's on that screen? And the provider's like, yeah, let, me, let, let us go through this together. And so it's a more collaborative experience. Um, the next one is B, become involved. Review your records with your doctor and ask questions. So on the left panel, which is not the ideal way, um, you know, the patient sees that, oh, there's a medication on their list that they're actually not taking anymore. And they say, hey, I'm actually not taking that anymore. And the provider says, oh, I'm so glad that you pointed it out. Let's correct that together. So you can see what's on the screen. You can correct things that aren't true. You can use it with your provider to jointly create your narrative because at the end of the day, it's your chart. <laughs> it's your information. And then my favorite one is the last one, which is C, call for attention. If you have something sensitive that you need to discuss, it is okay. And in fact, we want you to speak up and ask for your doctor's full attention. So in this scene, they're, they're showing um, time when the patient's saying, you know, there's something really difficult that I would like to discuss. Um, do you, do you mind kind of focusing on me? And then the panel shows the provider saying, yes, of course, let's talk about this, where they kind of put the screen away. So it's knowing, knowing when to use them and knowing when to fold them kind of thing and integrating the EHR so that it fits naturally with the flow of conversations. And what was the reaction you were seeing from the patients and what changes were you seeing? Yeah, so um, nearly three-quarters of uh, the patients, either the pediatric parents that we passed out to or the adult patients, thought that the comic was really effective in encouraging them to get more involved with the EHR during their visits, which was awesome. Um, Over half of both groups thought that their doctor was less distracted by the computer and that they were more focused on them, that they understood more about either their or their child's health or their treatment plan because of how the doctor was now using the computer to provide education to them um, and more satisfied with their relationship um, with their physician because of how they were using the computer. So a very simple passing out of the comic was really an invitation to get involved And it looked like people were actually benefiting in terms of understanding and in terms of their satisfaction with this one really easy, simple little step. In Iowa, UnityPoint identified that the LGBTQ community had issues within healthcare and there was an opportunity to improve the experience for these patients. Dr. Kyle Christensen explained that they had read the literature, held focus groups, and reached out to the community and were able to confirm that trust was at risk, which led to this population avoiding care. Through the studies that we did, both through focus groups as, as well as um, uh, studying the literature, we, we felt that the best clinic scenario, outpatient scenario for our community was going to be a primary care uh, clinic. 
And so what we created was something that is intended to be primary care focused. And we know that, um, that a lot of uh, the care, uh, to date, a year and a half into the clinic, is focused on specifically transgender uh, access for, for primary care. So the clinic is multidisciplinary, it's multi-specialist, uh, and uh, the entire team from the scheduler to the lab tech to the physicians and nurse practitioners, everyone has gone through a uh, safe zones type of training, so a sensitivity training specifically for LGBTQ. That allows us to have a very common understanding of how we are going to create that safer, more welcoming environment. It uh, allows us to pay attention to uh, to small things um, that that ultimately end up having a massive impact on one's experience uh, through the, the clinic process. And so what steps were you taking to get the word out and make the community feel like they actually had a place and they had people that they could trust? The first was to create that very physical space, uh, the clinic itself. And through lots of um, uh, small, uh, meaningful interactions that we can have with our, our patients, we create that safer, more affirming environment uh, for healthcare. The second prong of our approach has been more of, of an education approach. And so we feel that it's incredibly important to just raise the conversation in our community, both as uh, the community of, of healthcare providers, but also the community at large. And, and so we have done um, numerous safe zones type training, really equipping our, our colleagues in healthcare uh, across the community in terminology and, and, and really um, I like to think about it as, as easy button uh, uh, tools, equipping them to create a safer, more welcoming environment uh, for LGBTQ. And what sort of reactions were you getting from the LGBTQ community that you were treating? Well, one of the things we've tried to do is, is how can we objectively measure success of this clinic? And, and we do that with a number of different metrics, uh, new patients, if you will, to the, to the organization. Uh, we, we do a satisfaction survey, and, and we measure that uh, objectively as we can. Uh, so to date, we have over a 60% return rate, which you know, for most surveys is really good. Um, and the scores are, are universally very high. So that's nice, but it's the stories that our patients tell us that really become the most impactful. And, and truthfully, um, we, we did not anticipate the impact on the providers that those stories would have. And the way we finished the, the, the clinic night is, is we ask every single team member, again, from schedulers to providers and, and everywhere, everyone on the team, to share their, their what we call joy bombs. And it's their, their moment of, of connecting with what they love about medicine. And what we're finding are, are those stories, they've, they've created a huge impact on, on the providers, reconnecting them with their purpose in healthcare, reminding them of, of why they started healthcare to begin with. Duke University School of Medicine also understood the power of stories, and it launched a podcast through which it could share the stories of providers, staff, students, trainees, and patients. The initiative was part of Duke's focus on workforce well-being and burnout through building community and connecting people back to their purpose, explained Dr. Jonathan Bay, assistant professor. Miracles happen at Duke every day, literally every day in the building right in which I am sitting. 
And I think that because it's so busy, it's so fast-paced, the patients are so complex, or just because we see it all the time, we forget about that. Uh, and so that was the really where this whole uh, inception began to, the inception of the project began was to think about, are there ways we can tell the stories uh, and build trust between our team members and connect them back to purpose? And, and in doing so, build the well-being of our workforce. Did you ever have any difficulty getting people to participate and open up? You know, uh, it's, oh man, uh, so uh, some, um, uh, you know, like I think people were, are still not quite sure what this is, uh, you know, so, you know, we, we quickly filled up our slate of the long stories, so the long form stories. Um, uh, we also, uh, we haven't actually uh, finished assembling it, you know, collected a lot of just voices from around the organization. Actually, one of the more powerful uh, stories we have is this two-minute clip we captured just with a microphone out uh, during one of our farmers market that we have in between some of our buildings on our main campus. Uh, it was just a, a patient who stopped and shared a story. It was very powerful. But but what uh, you know what you see is that uh, there's a there's a cohort of people that want to tell their story, and so you know we did a lot of efforts to broadcast and make this available, and just kind of created a sign up list, and then people would sign up. But I thought some of the more fascinating things were when we would just put these the listening booth out and just have the microphone there and have people come and uh, and talk. And people were always hesitant to come up to the microphone to start sharing. Uh, but once they did, it was like, almost like you couldn't get them to stop talking. <laughs> they would start talking and then they would just almost forget the microphones there. Now, a lot of that I would, I would say was due to the uh, expertise of our team who were doing the questions. They would do some warm up questions and then kind of, they had a couple questions that they would lead people into the, 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 fur, the further discussion. But uh, once people just kind of got into it and started talking the microphone, they would, they would go, but, but it, that people did have to overcome some, hesitancy about sharing a story that personal. And so why is this something that you recommend other hospitals and academic medical centers replicate? Uh, I don't know if there's other folks uh, that have done uh, this. I mean, at least I haven't seen. I mean, there's other podcasts out there focusing on the patient story and connecting back to that, uh, kind of, but more like at the national level, none, none specifically to a hospital that I can encounter. What I would say is that like, uh, you know, Duke, I think Duke is a, a, a unique place, but but I would imagine in many of these other organizations, amazing things and miracles are happening all around. Uh, and and my guess would be that uh, we are not unique in the sense that people often overlook what's right in front of them and what a powerful uh, and, and frankly, relatively cost-effective way to widely disseminate some of the stories and connect people back to the joy and the reasons they went into healthcare to begin with. Uh, it's, it's just right there in front of them. Uh, and so, so I would, I would say from that standpoint, it's great. And I will, I will say personally, I have benefited from it great, greatly, uh, both, uh, uh, as I've, I've listened to them in my car and listened to the stories as I've able to be able to share some of my own stories. Um, and then we use some of the examples, um, uh, and some of the, uh, resiliency and uh, well-being training that we offer, uh, and and when we play some of these clips for the room, uh, you can you can, it's it's been really powerful to watch the impact some of these stories have on on people. Uh, so, story is a powerful medium. It cuts to the core of our emotions, and, and I think people crave it and crave being part of something bigger than themselves. And this is a way, and it, 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 frankly, a really simple way to connect people to that. Two organizations focused on team building. 
First, Dr. Robert Shockett explains the program at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, which created a learning community to help students in medical school and beyond learn about being in a team by sharing with one another, challenging and supporting one another, all while helping one another develop as medical professionals. Um, the way our program works, as most learning communities do, you know, if you think um, about uh, fiction and the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, the Harry Potter series, medical students at Johns Hopkins are sorted into four communities when they enter medical school. Um, and these communities are named after uh, legacy Hopkins faculty members. And within each community structure, uh, students are subdivided into smaller learning groups of five students with one faculty member. Um, and uh, there is, uh, we call these learning groups molecules. And there are six molecules in each class year in a community. And uh, these um, molecules become the learning units for one of the students' first courses, Clinical Foundations of Medicine, where they learn about professionalism and communication skills and physical examination of patients. This um, learning unit, the molecule, stays together even beyond this Clinical Foundations of Medicine course all the way through their four years um, as a reflecting team so that they, as they have um, different courses and take on different responsibilities and roles in their journey to becoming doctors, um, they can debrief critical experiences, learning moments, um, their changing identities, um, and, uh, and the challenges that they're facing along the way um, with this um, intimate group of learners and with their um, assigned faculty member. One way that I think this helps them develop a team concept uh, is that they, um, they don't get to pick who's going to be in their molecule. We intentionally put uh, groups of students together who come from different backgrounds um, so that they um, uh, learn to understand different perspectives and see them as strengths. Uh, another way is that um, they, they learn to share their, their weaknesses and vulnerabilities uh, as well as their strengths with team members, and they begin to get comfortable not hiding those, um, but seeing those that there are opportunities for growth by sharing them. And what was the response from students who went through this? How were they feeling about the experience afterwards? Um, yeah, our students love the, the program. We call it the colleges program. Um, and in some ways, they say it's the, one of the best things about their medical school experience. Um, they develop a very close relationship with their faculty advisor teacher, um, as well as some of uh, the, their other team members. They described um, uh, the course, the CFM course, um, and being in the molecule as a safe place to fail. Um, I think which is a very profound statement because um, medical students in general are really very gifted students and they tend to have a perfectionistic streak to them um, and so they're, they're only used to getting very high marks for their performance in school um, and, and uh, so that um, they become accustomed to uh, school as, as almost being a performance culture. Um, as opposed to something that's more deliberately developmental. So why was this program created? Was it like a response to something that was seen at the school? 
Yes, uh, this was definitely a response to um, learning environment issues at this medical school and in medical schools in general, and also uh, national concerns about about medical professionals. So I'll, I'll be more specific. So um, a student at Hopkins about 15 years ago um, said on a on a survey, "I just want someone to know me here." Now that's pretty. That's a pretty incredible statement for um, a medical school that has a small class size, relatively of 120 students per year. But I think it really reflected the degree of uh, that the learning environment was fragmented. Um, that there is a carousel of expert teachers that students experience, um, and uh, a lot of social isolation and clinical training. Um, at the same time, nationally, back in um, the 1990s and early 2000s, there was growing concern about medical professionalism, about a failure of, of physicians to display professional behavior. And I think what we realized is that it really takes a village to, to raise each medical student to become a, a really thoughtful, reflective medical professional. And, um, and the best way to do that is by um, learning through relationships. Um, so, so the learning community system is really a relationship-centered system um, where, where we learn through relationships with each other. Oregon Health and Science University sought to teach individuals to become leaders and changemakers through a three-month interprofessional cross-generational collaborative. Dr. Brian Park explained that while the patient-provider relationship is often held sacred, the relationship between providers and members on the care team is often overlooked. I, I remember there was one instance, um, it was my first year of medical training or, or residency, and um, I was with a supervising physician who I remember he had this, this reputation for just torpedoing any sense of, of safety um, or collaboration amongst the team members. He would roll his eyes whenever residents were presenting or uh, he would kind of laugh sarcastically whenever other members of the team would come up to him with a, a concern. I remember one night, one of the uh, overnight physicians had admitted a patient for um, aspiration pneumonitis. That's when a drink or food goes down the wrong tube into the airway and um, appropriately, they had, they had done the right treatment thing and not started any sort of antibiotics. And as we were getting that sort of report from this uh, resident physician, I remember that supervising doctor rolled his eyes at them. And um, after the, the resident physician from overnight left, uh, he turned to, to me and my senior resident and he said, you know what to do. You, you should start antibiotics and at that point, we had been just so run down between um, feelings that we were being constantly wrong by this physician, constant feelings that we were being uh, evaluated poorly, that against our better individual judgment, we, we started antibiotics on this patient. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say that that patient ended up getting uh, complications from starting antibiotics that that patient didn't need. Um, and so what I learned from that experience is that, you know, a lack of trust amongst members on a team, it's not only because it leads to disengagement and it's not only because it makes um, that team function in a, in a bad way. It, it's also because it has real life implications, real life impact 
um, on team members and on, on patients. And so what is the most difficult part of setting this up and getting people to actually participate in this leadership institute? Yeah, I, I think when I think about the culture of medicine or the culture culture of healthcare at large, it's been socialized in a lot of ways to think about productivity. It's been socialized to think a lot about more traditionally executive forms of leadership, you know, people falling into certain ranks or, or hierarchy. And I think what trust uh, ultimately does is it openly humanizes other people on our team and it immediately flattens that hierarchy that's on teams. And I think in a big way that um, infusing a team with relationships, it's almost countercultural in that way. So I think for us, a lot of our learning curve has been, how do we ensure that people don't think that what we're doing is um, only about, you know, happyology, quote unquote, making people feel good. But really it's that um, when you follow that, feeling down the end of the line at the end of it, there's a real life impact, not just on team members, but on patients too. And so for us, I think building that bridge or that arc or articulating that, where we can show that the evidence supports that um, a lack of trust leads to um, increased medical errors, increased provider um, dissatisfaction, um, you know, increased QI failures. I think that that's been um, a big challenge for us that we've been um, learning to to face head on. Three organizations focused on building trust between clinicians and their organizations. Mayo Clinic focused on physician leadership, building a strong foundation of trust and mutual respect within an organization benefits patients and their families, explained Dr. Stephen Swenson. And Mayo Clinic has been administering staff surveys since 1981 to gauge work, climate, morale, and leadership. As part of that annual staff survey that we administer now to 65,000 staff and 4,500 physicians, we had questions about the um, each person's immediate supervisor or leader uh, or head of the, or nurse manager, and 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 we looked, we found a relationship between. Uh, those leader behaviors and the well-being of staff. And we already knew there was a very, very important relationship between the well-being of staff and the experience and outcomes for patients. So we decided to um, focus our work on, uh, on the, those five leader behaviors for physicians. And we had have, we have 242 titled physician leaders at the time for the 4,000-some uh, physician staff, and it worked so well that we scaled it to all 3,300 frontline point-of-care um, leaders, so nurse managers and accountant supervisors and social worker you know, managers. So, um, so we, you know, we published our results. We, uh, are, uh, we know there's a strong relationship, it's statistically significant, and we know that it works. And so what are the five behaviors and exactly what is being measured in these staff surveys and what are you finding? The five behaviors are ones that resonated with almost anyone that hears them. They, they engender trust and, and, and they're basically the five behaviors that anyone would want in the person that has the privilege of leading uh, you. And so the five behaviors um, are common sense. They're just 
not common practice. First behavior is um, thank you for your work with the team today. I really appreciate you going the extra miles. The first behavior is appreciation and recognition. The second is um, transparent communication. Here's everything we know about what's going on with our team or our work unit. Let's figure this out together. It's kind of participative management. The third is um, asking each individual on the team, collectively and one-on-one, what their ideas are. And so they, they get the acknowledgement and the affirmation that you care about them as a person and as a thinker, and you want to figure out the best way forward with all of the ideas possible. Uh, the fourth behavior is I'm interested in you and your career. What's your dream position here five years from now at Mayo Clinic, and how can we achieve that together? So a, a development, even if they don't want to be um, the president of Mayo Clinic, they, what do they want to be doing um, that would be most meaningful and satisfying to them? And the fifth behavior is inclusion. Everyone in the team must feel, must feel respected and trusted and acknowledged and um, welcomed, regardless of genome or phenome, regardless of creed or um, orientation. And, and so those five simple behaviors of recognize, develop, acquire, inform, include, um, we found a very powerful relationship with um, staff fulfillment and satisfaction. So on a 60-point scale, 6-0, 60-point scale, for every one point upwards, there was a 9% higher rate of satisfaction and fulfillment of the staff in that work area. And for every one point out of 60 point upwards on that scale, relative to how staff answered these five uh, questions about their uh, leader, um, there was a 3.3% lower rate of professional burnout. Both were statistically significant. So we know this works. And, um, and, and even if it doesn't, even if we didn't show it, it, it works, which we did, we published results, it's just common sense. Who wouldn't want a leader that included them, that informed them, that was interested in their ideas, that was interested in their career, and appreciated them in a genuine way? The Wisconsin Collaborative for Healthcare Quality is a voluntary consortium of health systems and is focused on data quality and transparency to build trust. Christopher Quarum, president and CEO, explains the purpose of the collaborative and the unique situation in Wisconsin that led to mistrust. Our um, organization was created at a time of a significant debate that was going on in the country about data quality and transparency. And in Wisconsin, there was a consortium of uh, organizations, employers, business coalitions, labor unions, consumer advocates who had been pushing for some time to increase the amount of information that was available to the public. They um, persuaded the governor at the time to sign a bill that would require physician clinics to submit claims data to a state data agency and had used a public file of hospital discharge data to uh, develop and distribute a comparative hospital performance report. And as a result of those actions, there was just a lot of mistrust among the parties um, in late 2002. 
And that led the leaders of uh, a number of health systems from around the state to reach out to the members of that consortium to see if there might be some better way to move forward. And that launched uh, literally a year of discussion that took place among the parties to um, talk about hopes and fears and goals and aspirations. And out of that emerged an agreement that built enough trust that enabled the uh, members of the consortium to agree to not pursue any further unilateral action in exchange for a commitment by those health system leaders to uh, develop a method of measuring physician performance, to use that method to publicly report measures, and perhaps most significantly, agree not to use the measure results for competitive advantage, but instead as a vehicle to bring organizations together uh, in an effort to improve care across the state. So there's always going to be someone at the bottom. How are providers and health systems viewing that public reporting, knowing that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and um, one of the um, lessons that we've learned across time is that um, it's important to meet organizations where they're at. As, as our work has matured and as we've uh, grown to have 40 um, member organizations, um, there is quite a bit of variation in the levels of performance. Even uh, top-performing organizations are not consistently uh, the best performer at everything. So there's always an opportunity to improve. Um, but we, we've, uh, we work with organizations to understand uh, their cultures, understand uh, the degree of readiness on the part of not just executive and clinical leaders, but also um, uh, frontline uh, caregivers uh, who may not um, be as exposed to um, the, the notion of uh, transparency and public reporting. Um, we, we really view this uh, work as an ongoing proposition. We're not interested in um, exposing uh, an organization before it has had the opportunity to socialize the measures with their staff, uh, prepare their um, talking points, and help their colleagues understand um, why it's important to publicly report. And then um, support those organizations um, with uh, by engaging them in our improvement collaboratives and our uh, improvement initiatives in the um, with the goal of um, helping that organization improve. So it's a you know it's a process, not an event. And being structured as a membership organization, we want to do everything we can uh, to help our member organizations derive value and stay engaged with us for the long term. Coming back full circle to EHRs, Hawaii Pacific Health implemented its program to make documentation and use of the EHR easier. Dr. Melinda Ashton admits that it hadn't actually been the goal of Hawaii Pacific Health to build trust, but there had to be trust if physicians were going to believe the organization was going to actually take suggestions seriously. So um, Getting Rid of Stupid Stuff started a couple of years ago for us, and um, it was um, in response to, you know, several uh, sort of processes that we found that were um, required documentation in our EHR, basically, that 
we really felt like um, we'd made a mistake in requiring them and in creating them and that we needed to remove those. But we also felt that it was quite likely that there would be other things like those processes that if we asked our frontline employees who have to use the EHR, you know, what else is there? What else is it that seems stupid to you? Um, that we would get some additional nominations. And so we were really interested in just trying to uncover those things that people would sort of shake their head and say, oh, why do I bother? So what were some of the challenges you faced with the suggestions being submitted? I imagine actually following through to respond to them and actually make changes wasn't always the easiest thing. We expected that we would find sort of three different categories. One would be um, just the, the whatever was being suggested or or you know, nominated um, would be just so patently stupid that we would just fix it. And we did have some of those. Um, The second category was that it wasn't necessarily going to be um, something that was that obvious, but that maybe now with new tools, new understanding, better, um, better circumstances, that we could do something more efficiently than we had when we originally built it. Um, And then the third category was expected to be things that we really couldn't change or that we didn't need to change because we already had better processes. And it would either be that it would be um, very likely kind of an educational process to the person that brought it up to say, oh, well, here, there's this other way of doing it. Or, hey, we're really sorry, but this one's required and we have to do it this way. So we expected those three categories of nominations and we received some in each category. So I'm really curious, what were some of the patently stupid things that kind of popped up? Yeah, one of our favorite patently stupid um, was uh, fixed within 30 minutes, and that was um, a nurse who worked in the adolescent uh, unit or um, with older children um, asked us to please remove the requirement to document on the status of the umbilical cord. Um, and... So what had happened was there was supposed to be an age restriction on that documentation requirement, and the age restriction didn't happen. Just an oversight. Nobody did it on purpose. Um, and the, the sort of the really crazy thing was that that was a very engaged nurse, one of the leaders of that unit. She'd worked there in this EHR system for more than 10 years. So for every patient, every shift that she'd worked over that time and all of her colleagues, Um, they'd each had to document that the cord was absent in every one of their patients. And it took this program for her to sort of think about saying, hey, could we fix this, please? And so that was one that we, is quite a favorite uh, as far as, wow, that's crazy. And that was fixed without any discussion or anything else, just came in, um, understood it, and fixed it right away. Mm -hmm. There were others like that as well. Okay. Um, And then what is the reaction that you're seeing among staff that, you know, this is available to them to make these suggestions about what needs to be changed? Um, I think the the reaction has been really positive. Um, The... um, Everybody who sends in a suggestion or a nomination gets a sort of thanks for for thinking of us kind of... um, email back, and then they get a follow-up about what happened. Um, and so what we hear from our um, all of the folks who are, uh, you know, participating as well, I, I love that I can send something in and, and people can look at it and see if we can make a change. Um, 
the, the people who are actually frontline on working on these things get a lot of very appreciative emails about how wonderful they are. And with all hospitals and practices using EHRs or on their way to using EHRs, I'm sure you can see that others are going to want to replicate this. Are there any potential pitfalls or challenges you see that may prevent others from finding success implementing something similar? Yeah, and in fact, we know that there are others that are already doing this. Um, I've heard from a number. So uh, my suggestion or my my advice is that um, a couple things that need to be thought of ahead of time. One is I think it's really important um, for it to be led by someone, you know, um, in the executive suite or, or someone who can really literally stand up and say, I think we have stupid stuff around here. Um, I think it's important that they have a couple of their own examples, not just use ours. And I think the other piece that we've learned about is that it's really important to have an IT infrastructure so that these nominations don't just go into a black hole and that they, they, in fact, do get worked on and, and fixed. To learn more about the Trust Practice Challenge, see the show notes or visit ABIM Foundation's website. Or you can read Dr. Richard Barron's commentary in this month's issue of the American Journal of Accountable Care. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.